we all can grow, we all can change, we all can evolve, and we all can accept, you know, what's around the corner. Uh, because the, the generations that have come before us gave us a great foundation, and we have a responsibility to make it better for the next generation. Welcome to Change Your Mindset Podcast, formerly known as Improv is No Joke, where it's all about believing that strong communication skills are the best way in delivering your technical accounting knowledge and growing your business. An effective way of building stronger communication skills is by embracing the principles of applied improvisation. Your host is Peter Margarita, CPA, a.k.a. The Accidental Accountant, and he will interview financial professionals and business leaders to find their secret in building stronger relationships with their clients, customers, associates, and peers, all the while growing their businesses. So let's start the show. Welcome to episode 26, and my very special guest today is Kimberly Ellison Taylor, who is one remarkable woman. Kimberly is currently a global strategy leader at Oracle. She has held positions at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, Motorola, KPMG, and a role in government at Prince George's County in Maryland. Now, from 2016 to 2018, Kimberly served as the 104th chairman of the American Institute of CPAs, where she received numerous awards and recognition. Notably, she was the youngest person, the fifth woman, and first person of color to serve as chairman in the AICPA's 130-year history. Kimberly was the second chairman for the Association of International Certified Professional Accountants, an organization founded in 2017 that has 667,000 members in 184 countries. She has been recognized by Accounting Today as one of the top people in public accounting, 2018, and by CPA Practice Advisor as one of the 2018 most powerful women in accounting. Her drive, energy, and passion can be traced back to when she was growing up in inner-city Baltimore. I'm going to keep it a secret for now, but she will let you know at what age she knew that she wanted to become an accountant. She has traveled the world representing the accounting profession and away from her family. Her success is equally attributed to to the support of her husband, Darius, and her two boys, Darius and Dominic. She is one remarkable woman who I admire and thankful that we're both colleagues and friends. Before we get to the interview, I wanted to share with you that Change Your Mindset is now being distributed on C-Suite Radio. You can find Change Your Mindset as well as many other outstanding business podcasts on C-Suite Radio by going to www.c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. And now a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Peter A. Margaritas, LLC, a.k.a. The Accidental Accountant. Are you looking for a high-content and engaging speaker for your next conference? Do you want to deliver a story to stakeholders that will transform data dumping to engaging business conversations? Do you want to feel that the value a speaker provides your audience far exceeds the dollar value on their invoice? Then book Peter for your next conference, management retreat, or workshop. Contact Peter at peter at petermargaritas.com and visit his website at www.petermargaritas.com. By the way, one of his Fortune 50 clients actually made the comment about the value he brings to your audience. Now, let's get to the interview with Kimberly Ellison Taylor. Hey, welcome back, everybody. You know, I've interviewed a lot of rock stars in the accounting profession, but in my, in my music world, Bruce Springsteen is the biggest rock star. I'm about to interview in the accounting profession my Bruce Springsteen, Kimberly <laughs> Ellison Taylor. Thank you so very much for taking time out of your hectic, busy, crazy schedule to spend some time with me. Well, I can't thank you enough for that amazing introduction. Uh, it's a shame we don't hear the crowd screaming for me like they do for Bruce. <laughs> but I'm still delighted to be the rock star 
uh, on your podcast, <laughs> at least for right now. <laughs> well, I have been in the in the audience a number of times when you have spoke, and they give you a thunderous applause at the beginning and even louder one at the end. So you do hear those crowds. <laughs> I appreciate my colleagues a lot. So thank you. So Kimberly, if you could, in a nutshell, I know I've done a little bit of the introduction, but could you give people a sense of who you are and the accomplishments that you have achieved in your professional life and in your personal life too? Well, to bring it to a Reader's Digest version, and that's how I'm dating myself. So I'll start out and say, I am a Gen Xer, for sure. I was born in 1970. So we'll let all of our accountants do the math. And so that means that, yes, I can see that you're thinking about what that means. So yes, I'll be 49 in two months. Just only two months. And so in my years, I've had the just the excitement of having people around me that give me inspiration, that motivate me, that say, Kimberly, you can do it. And that started with my parents uh, who really believed that hard work, perseverance, education would, play, would pay off. And so I've kind of taken those core values with me throughout my entire career, knowing, very fortunate to know that I wanted to be a CPA in the third grade. And I think that when you're in the third grade and you say something that big, everyone says, oh, sure, honey, sure, honey. I don't know if they realize that I would stick to my knitting. And so everything I did after that kind of was right focused on that objective. And I've even had people say, well, Kimberly, how do you know? And I know because when I went from, now this is really dating myself, but I'll say it, (laughs) from the eighth grade, which was junior high school, to the ninth grade, which was the new junior high school, I picked a school on purpose that had a business curriculum. I wanted to be in a business curriculum in high school on purpose. My high school yearbook says that I wanted to be an accountant. So I've been very serious about my goals and objectives. And I took accounting in high school, which I think is very, very important to create preference and awareness as early as we can for our profession before other things and industries kind of could take center stage in our minds, I think we have to talk about the options that are available. And then when I went to UMBC, go UMBC, (laughs) I (laughs) I majored in information systems. And so although I majored in information systems, Peter, I still wanted to be a CPA. And so I got an MBA from Loyola and said, you know what? I need to do this. I went to school at night. I was working full-time during the day at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. And I went to a community college for two years at night, two classes a week, which I know everyone who has ever taken a summer class or a three-hour accounting class will know how difficult that was. But that's how focused and determined I was. And so I've been able to walk this fine line between technology and accounting. I've been able to walk this fine line of leveraging my accounting and finance acumen in every role I've had. And so working at NASA Goddard, working at Motorola, certainly working at KPMG, being a CIO, and now having been at Oracle for almost 15 years, every step of the way, I've always recognized that there were technology implications and always understood that there were finance implications. People, process, technology, and the financial resources. And I've been able to leverage the both of those on top of the foundation that my parents set for me when they said very early that don't be afraid and you need to pay your dues and work hard to get ahead. Wow, that's um, that's an incredible story. There are some things in there that I have not heard from the past. Um, and, and I think you grew up in, in a very tough part of Baltimore. You grew up in the inner city of Baltimore. and that. The insight and foresight that your parents had and the determination and the perseverance had to also come out of growing up in that part of Baltimore. That is correct. I mean, I grew up in the inner city of Baltimore and my mom and it's and so whenever I had the chance to speak, I always give shout outs to women who make really tough decisions in their career choices to help anchor and be the anchor for their families. And my mom did that. I mean, she probably could have done anything 
But she said, listen, I cannot work while I have three girls that I'm trying to raise in the inner city of Baltimore. I have a sister that is four years older, a sister that is four years younger. So I am slam dab in the middle. <laughs> and she she was pretty fierce. She she was serious about good character, you know, being someone of of good moral fiber, making sure that we would be women that could hold our heads up, take care of ourselves, be independent. And and so she was like, I need to be there to do that. And so we got to school at two thirty. At two forty-five, I can tell you, my mom threatened so many days that if we weren't home at two forty-five, she would be in curlers, hair curlers, at the school. And that fear, Peter, kept us on track because we did not want to be embarrassed. So embarrassment is a great motivator. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of truth in that. Embarrassment is a great motivator. So. Yeah. Great business career, but but you're such a volunteer. You, you volunteer your time. You've you've held roles uh, as the chair of the Maryland Association of CPAs. You've held roles at the uh, AICPA. You've held roles, executive roles, chair roles, leadership roles at the Association of International Certified Professional Accountants. What, what what's this? And you love state CPA societies. I do know that about you. You, you absolutely yes, I do. love. Where did where did that the desire to volunteer to give back? What fuels that? And 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 that's a great question. And actually, no one's ever asked me that question. And I think Peter, it's because I recognize. I think it comes from having such a strong faith background. So I grew up God fearing for sure, understanding that it's about servant leadership. It's, a, it's about helping people who might just need a little hand up. It may also come from my walk, growing up in the inner city, so different socioeconomic background, mm-hmm. as a black female, so different race from, from the environment that I'm operating in for the most part, and different gender from some of the executive positions that I've been in. And so I think with each one of those, it made me realize that other people may just need a little bit of help. Other people may need role models. Other people may need courage to say that they can do it when they hear your story, that I haven't shied away from the tough stories, which, you know, there's a, a sometimes uh, we move toward the best stories, the success stories. Mm-hmm. What we don't see is the iceberg, all of the determination, the sacrifice, the hard work, the disappointments that are underneath the water. Right. We only see the success. So it feels like a 48-year success overnight, right? But they don't really realize all of of the things that go into it. And so for me, I think too much is given, much is required. And I think it's also important to lift as we climb. And, that, and that's what, you know, the NABA community says, and I believe that is true. And so I have adopted an elementary school and I try to go and give school supplies or go and participate in the programs during the holiday time. Um, I've participated in Susan G. Coleman walks, participated in St. Jude, I've did programs with our military and for our military laying wreaths on the graves. And and also is a is key to this discussion, working with the profession. And I think it is important because the more of us that can give visibility to the options that are available, the more of us that will be attracted to the profession, that will stay in the profession will be advanced and promoted to the highest levels of the profession. And I think that if not me, who? If not now, when? And we all have individual accountability and responsibility to do our part and to pay it forward. And so I, it's just a part of who I am. And in every instance, I think that's why I've grown. I believe in karma. I believe you, you certainly you know, reap what you sow. And I have received way more than I have ever given. And in each one of those instances, it put me in contact with people that I would have never met. Mm, It gave me exposure to things and experiences I would have never had. And so I always recommend state society volunteerism because it's on the ground training in a safe environment where you can learn more than you would learn in any other place. And so I'm, I'm just a fan, as you said, and it's true of especially the Maryland Society of CPAs. Yes, uh, very much so. Uh, and uh, for those of you who are listening to this, I don't, I, and you're probably thinking the exact same thing that I am right now. And you want me to ask 
Kimberly this question. <laughs> Do you sleep at all? <laughs> I don't sleep a lot. That's true. That is good. So is that the question that lit up your phone bank? Everyone wants to know. So this is it, Peter. This is this is it. I only really need about, and no one's ever asked me this either. So you're getting new information. <laughs> Five and a half hours, and I'm good. So I'll probably, and you tell me what that calculation is. I'll go to bed about 1, 1.30 a.m. And because my kids, although they have alarm clocks, sometimes I feel like I'm the alarm clock. <laughs> so I'll get up at 6.30 to make sure that they are up and they're getting dressed. And the times when I said, oh, I'm going to not do it because I'm going to see if they'll get up on their own, it doesn't work. Although the <laughs> clock is blaring, they set the snooze 10 times, and I have to call them in the morning from wherever I am. I call them every morning at about 6.30. And, and so it just means that I don't need that much sleep. But every four days or so, it catches up, mm. and you have to sleep. And, and so it just works. And I'm a night owl. So for me, which is unfortunate, I'm at my peak energy level at like 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so that is like, what in the world am I going to do? At your peak at 10 o'clock at night. And I've, I've interacted with you, for, with you for a number of years. And I'm going, oh, my God, what is it like at 10 o'clock at night? Because I see you during the day and you like to energize your bunny on, on steroids. <laughs> flying through yeah, everything. That- that is that is true, but I prefer. I know people who get up at five in the morning, and there is I could stay up to five in the morning, but there is no way I could get up at five in the morning just because I get up that time because I'm usually going to the airport. I mean, that's how I do my work. You know, family life integration. Mm-hmm. I'll tend to go stay the night with the kids and my husband, and then get up first thing in the morning sometimes, and, and so it just works. But that's not what I prefer to do. My preferred <laughs> Best hours, Peter, would be something like nine to seven or something. Okay. Yes. So before we move further, we we have to give a shout out to your husband and to your kids. Yeah. Your your husband's name is? Darius Taylor. And how long have you guys been married? We've been married. It'll be 22 years on July 4th. Oh, wow. But I met him as a sophomore. So we've known each other 29 years, but we have been married 22 years in July. Wow, congratulations. And your children? They are, so it's Dominic and Darius II, and they are 14 and 16. So your role as the chair of the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and your role of chair of the Association for International Certified Professional Accountants took you around the world. It took did. You, took you away from home a lot. And, it did. And, and managing a family and being away and having those boys at, at that age uh, makes you even much more of a special person because I have not met them but you've talked a lot about them and from what, and I don't think you're just being a proud mother. I just think you'd be very honest. They're good boys. Yes. I, I like, I would never say that to them, but I'm going to pat them on the back where they can't hear it because they know that I'm kind of education is, is serious. Don't take it for granted. Work hard, pay your dues. Don't feel entitled. Don't think that you're picking up that trophy. If you were 10th place, if you're not first, second, or third, try harder next oh. time. So I'm that mom. <laughs> I, and that's, that's, I, I love that because I, my son was on the dive team, and he's, he's now 18, so this is when he was a lot younger. And, and, and they were giving out ribbons. And, uh-huh. and, I, and, and my wife um, told me to leave because he got a 10th place ribbon. And, and I, I kind of said some words a little bit too lou- louder than I should have. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like my husband. Yeah, and I'm going, why get, no, it's first, second, third, and then try harder. Yes. Yeah, have that, same- that, is, that is exactly what I think. And I, and I say that to them to say, I refuse to diminish the hard work and sacrifice of the people who were in the first place. And I think the trophy should be different. First place, you get the big trophy. Second place, you get a smaller one. Third place, you get a smaller one. 
do silver, bronze, gold, do something. But don't make it seem as if everyone's effort was the same because it's not. And everyone else can get a certificate, but everyone else should not get trophies. I mean, there are different ways to motivate people. But I bought my son a shirt that said, if winning wasn't important, why do they keep score? <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's, that's true. And, and just ask uh, your alma mater's basketball team last year in the, uh, mm-hmm. in, in the, uh, in the NCAA tournament. Yeah. The first team to ever beat a number one seed. And let me tell you, I was so proud. And Dr. Freeman Rabowski has done such an amazing job at UMBC. My husband and I both wonder if we could have gotten in there today. Sure. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, I, I, I feel the same way about my alma mater, University of Kentucky. I, I, I don't think I'd be able to get in, uh, in, today's, in today's world as I watch my son, who's getting ready to start his college career uh, this upcoming fall, which makes me really feel old right now. But Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Moving, moving past that, so you know, I was chair of the Ohio Society of CPAs, and then I was on council uh-huh. for for three years, and that and and on the, the Ohio Society board first, that was my first taste of the accounting profession is much more than debits and credits and spreadsheets and calculators and anything along those lines. Uh-huh. It was such a, a broader view of of what the accounting profession is all about. So your years at the AICP. Well, before we do that, because I, I want to know what you're what you were seeing at the time that you were chair of the AICP. What was evolving in the years that that was happening? Oh my gosh, it's it was such an amazing opportunity to see all of the segments of our profession. And you're right when you're the chair of a state society, and when you get involved in the state society, your view expands. Because then you realize that, yes, it's about public practice, but we also have members that have needs and requirements from their business community that are in business and industry, that are in consulting, that are in government, not-for-profit, and that are also in the academic education environment. Mm -hmm. And so then you understand the importance of advocacy. And so when you move to the national and international level, you get to see all of those on a bigger scale because all of those areas have more tentacles, more requirements, the complexity grows, the scope grows, um, there's more at stake, and you're trying to balance every single thing. And it's, it's flying the plane, serving the coffee, and checking the engine all at the same time while remembering that we, we're here to support and protect the public interest, that yes, we all are trying to grow in our business communities and thrive. But what about Mr. and Mrs. Main Street investor? What about the people whose pensions or retirement funds are tied up into various environments? Are, are they safe? Are they reasonable? Is it a reasonable risk? And so I think it becomes um, much more, I would say, daunting in a way, but it's exciting and exhilarating because then you realize that you're adding your lens your view to a broader perspective across the profession. And so things that were really top of mind for me were next generation leadership and technology. And, and then, of course, our integration with the Chartered Institute of Management Accountants. So for me, those three things, among all of the other things, the peer review, um, looking at small firms and helping them, looking at tax reform, looking at things we're doing in the advisory space. All of those things are still important. They were important then. They'll always be important. But for me in particular, there was a laser focus on the three things I just mentioned. So before we go down that path, just so the audience has an understanding, can you tell us or describe to us the difference between the AICPA and the Association for International Professional Certified accountants. I have to pause every time because I'm still trying to get the words in the, in the right order. It's a mouthful. <laughs> so I think that every organization um, has different points where you do a SWAT, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And I think as we looked across our membership to reflect on what we could do to be uh, more advocates of our members, and helping them through their careers and their personal career journeys and providing the competency and learning that they needed, our assessment showed us that 
members who were anything other than in public practice was at least 50%. And if not 50%, directionally between 48 and 50% of our profession. And yet we had not in-house all of the resources that they would need that would give them the value proposition that they felt would have brought them back full-time active, renewing their CPA licenses or things that they could use inside um, their function in business and industry, for instance. And so as we looked around, you can decide that people make these decisions all the time. Do you make or do you acquire um, these types of, of skills? For us, if there was a partner already doing it, already a leader, already well-respected, well-branded, and would not provide competition with our auditing colleagues, why wouldn't we go forward with such an integration or joint venture? And for us, that was the Institute of Chartered Management Accountants, who are based in the UK, and they were in over 130 different countries already with their members well-known in the uh, management accounting space with resources, podcasts, blogs, and resources that were just already available and great success stories of leaders in 5350 companies who tout what they learned in the Chartered Institute of Management Accountants as being key to how they progress through their careers. It was just a kind of a great opportunity for us to bring to our membership and ask for their consideration we had to show the, the value proposition, the why, the who, the when, the how much, all of those. Our members are tough because they're accountants. <laughs> so they asked really tough questions about why this would be a benefit to them. And after we did all of the due diligence, working with the state societies who were especially key in communicating the value proposition to their respective members, the firms of all sizes, educational institutions, and certainly the not-for-profit space and education. But we went out and and did this grassroots kind of making sure everyone would be bought into it, especially the business and industry community that has been sitting inside AICPA for quite some time, but maybe not feeling that they were getting all of the assistance that they could have gotten. And so once we fortunately got a successful pass vote from our members, we then became the Association of Certified International Professional Accountants. And that meant that AICPA and SEMA, which is the Chartered Institute of Management Accountants, became the legacy founding bodies that stayed in place. We each have missions. We each have responsibilities to our, our members and core values. However, under the umbrella of the association, we became a stronger, more vibrant entity with a bigger voice that gave us more resources and the ability to service both of our membership more effectively than we could have individually. I couldn't put that any better. That was that was outstanding. Actually, I've, <laughs> I, and I've, I've asked folks over time to, to kind of explain it to me, and, and nobody has done the job quite like what you just described. Because now, I, I, and hopefully, the audience has a better understanding of those two organizations. And you're right; we haven't in the past really treated the BNI and, and the other aspects with the same reverence that we did with the with the firms. I, I remember. Oh, so this is way back. Uh, I went to pay for something on the Ohio Society website and it clicked for a credit card. It said firm or personal. And I went, what? Mm. <laughs> something as simple right. as that. You know, well, I'm, I'm not in a firm, I'm in a company. But from the company's perspective, also, I actually, when I went to go to work for Victoria's Secret Catalog, and I've told you, not as a model, but thank you for thinking about that. <laughs> Um, I asked about, I said about covering my, you know, will I be able to continue my uh, uh, license and get CPE? And they said, of course, we'll give you time. You you have two weeks vacation, correct? And I was oh. kind of, and I was in the finance role at the time. I was kind of shocked that they weren't going to support my CPA. And I, in all honesty and transparency, I let it lapse. Uh, and and I, I know that there are some, still to today, some organizations that internally don't support the people who have passed the exam and, and, and maintain their license to continue to maintain their license. There's, there's that misconception of value. And I think that's a stigma or, or something that 
to help that 50% get to be larger. So way to tell the story a little bit differently. So business, especially in today's environment, we're going to talk about the technology aspect, but in today's environment, it's even much more important that they maintain that skill set in order to help organizations continue to grow versus I don't have to learn now. And if I don't have to do my 40 hours, I'm not going to do my 40 hours, but I'm not going to also take the initiative and, and do the L cube lifelong learning. Something stops there. You know, it's interesting because for many of our members, the back to your first point, and then I'll go to the second mm-hmm. point. The firms don't always see the, the, the value proposition. And we have to be so valuable to a member that when I, for instance, when I had to pay on my own, I mean, so when I became a CPA, I was at KPMG. KPMG, you know, is very committed to the profession. So it was no, a no-brainer. I think KPMG pays um, is a 100% firm, just like a lot of the firms in the, the top 100 and G400. A lot of firms are committed. And that's, I should just say firms of all sizes are committed when they're able to. And so for me, it was like, ah, this is what you do. You just, when you become a CPA, you pay to be in your state society. You pay to be in the national organization, which is AFCPA. We hopefully would have value that members would be willing to pay, even if they had to pay for themselves. And that's what we were faced with when we were trying to make the decision of, do you make it on your own or do you acquire the Mm -hmm. resources that you need? And so, but you're right. The BNI community did not feel that that value proposition was there. And I've had colleagues, certainly at Oracle, who would say to me, Kimberly, I left the profession. Now, our, my colleagues are amazing. They're developing, they've developed, you know, cloud software solutions for enterprise resource planning. They're doing human capital management development. They're doing marketing. They're doing sales. They're doing account functions. So they are accountants. They trained as accountants. And yet, because they only saw one focus area, they perceive that when they left that world, they left the profession. Mm. And so the value and commitment to lifelong learning is something that we have to make sure that all employers are well aware of, the benefits of why financial skills are important. We just did a report between Oracle and the association that talked about the adoption of emerging technologies. And we found that more and more companies, instead of being uh, ahead and abreast of these technologies that are in the marketplace, like AI, blockchain, machine learning, big data, cybersecurity, that finance leaders are reporting that they feel even farther apart than they did a few years ago. Now, that's not the time to get hesitant. That's, it's not the time to stand still and wait and see what's going to happen or put our head in the sand and hope that this too will pass. We have to put our foot on a pedal be willing to be uncomfortable. And so I'm hopeful that employers will get the value proposition message and that even if that doesn't happen, that for instance, when I went into the government and they didn't pay, I paid for myself. And then when I came to Oracle, Oracle has paid my state and local, um, my Maryland Association of CPA dues, they paid the NABA dues, they paid the um, AFCPA dues, they supported me through all of my volunteerism, and certainly supported me through being chairman of the board for both the association and AICPA, because we also have a commitment to lifelong learning. Now, Oracle wouldn't say it that way, but when you're in an organization where adding value is a part of your core mission and what you do for mission-critical organizations, there is the expectation that you will continue to grow. There is an expectation that you're not going to sit back on your laurels, that we're going to be current. And so that kind of dovetails nicely with my desire to make sure that I'm maintaining my competencies and commitment to lifelong learning. Exactly. And I think in today's day and age, more than ever, that I, you know, I guess the aspect that we have to get, we have to earn these hours to maintain our licensure is that part of that motivation to keep yeah. us learning. But, you know, I don't believe in 40 hours. I believe in just learning and, and it could be 70, yeah. 80 hours, whatever. And not having that knowledge that is critical for the future of this profession and future of their organization, they're going to get passed by. 
And Correct. They're just, it's just going to, you know, you, you mentioned AI, you mentioned blockchain, you, you mentioned all these technologies. Now, I, I will tell you, the first time I heard blockchain, I thought it was an intestinal disorder. <laughs> you thought it was a blockage. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was some type of blockage. And, and apparently, I think there is some intestinal disorders when, you, when we start thinking about uh, blockchain because uh, how it works and the complexities of it and, and the, the three-dimensional aspect of it. Uh, but I, I think you mentioned something that as a profession, you know, we're, we're kind of waiting and seeing if something happens. You know, like when, when FASB would come out the standard or, or, or we're going to adopt uh, international financial reporting standards. Yeah. I'm just going to wait until it happens. Technology, <laughs> it's not going to wait for us. It's we can predict. I'm not going to go out tomorrow as you know, as the anticipatory organization uh, process. I'm not going to go out tomorrow and buy a, a dumber phone. Uh, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to continue to evolve with technology, and that doesn't stop where the standards might. And I think it's that change in mindset that CPAs need to to, to grasp that. We have to get on the train. We have to get on board. We have to get up to speed as quickly as possible or technology. We're going to be so far behind. We're going to be antiquated. That is absolutely true. So, and I say this pretty frequently, standing still isn't an option. Our lives have evolved because there are things, just like you mentioned, in our personal lives that if we did not have the technology option, it would be unacceptable. So for many of us who like mobile check-in, Many of us who like to do our own travel, many of us who if we were seeking to do digital engagement, we can go to LinkedIn and talk to our colleagues and people we don't even know. There is no going back. And most of the people who are maybe not as comfortable with technology would not even go back in their own personal lives. And so what I say, especially across the membership, if you're not asking questions about technology, you have risk in your environment. Because you're not asking the questions that could be the difference between a company that you're auditing or you're doing taxes for being here one year and not being here the next. And so we don't have a choice. We have to ask the questions about technology policies, technology compliance, procedures, cybersecurity, what's next from a strategic competitive value proposition. And technology is fueling transformation and disruption. So if they want their clients to be competitive in the marketplace, or if they need to report to the audit committee that with a fast movement of technology, that the track that they're on, we need to send a warning sign, that's not going to happen if we're not considering not only the community that we're in, but the global community fueling the pace of change at an unprecedented, unparalleled pace. And, and again, standing still is, Totally not an option. It's, it's not. And, and if you think about technology, so right now we're using Zoom. Prior to mm -hmm. Zoom, it was Skype. But prior to that, yeah. we would physically have to be in a location to do this. And we have agreed that the next time our paths cross, we are going to do this in a physical location. But just from this aspect of technology and, and the ability to collaborate and communicate by embracing it, and, and I'm excited to see what's next down the road as we communicate and collaborate and the tools that will be available for us. Well, I'm excited about that too, because I'm thinking that the technologies that are available but are cost prohibitive today, like holographic images, I'm expecting that we'll be in a conference room and the holographic image of everyone from China to the UK to somewhere in Brazil to somewhere in Canada, it could be in Ohio and Kentucky, we'll all be sitting around the digital virtual 3D images while someone is in the room talking. And that will be like the next evolution of being able to be there when you can't be there. Exactly. But when you said the holographic images, uh, 2014, I believe it was, National Speakers Association Annual Convention, one of... Uh, Hall of Fame speakers, a gentleman by the name of Mike Rayburn, was on stage playing this guitar next to a holographic image of Mike Rayburn playing the guitar. Wow. It was the, I, and I, I, I wow. was, yeah, the whole crowd was, it was, we were just, we were in such awe, but it might be a little bit closer than we think. And, and, and having that capability of being somewhere, but not having to be. 
I think it's here. I just think it's cost prohibitive. So oh. you're right. It is here. Mm-hmm. I just think that the cost has to come down right. to a more reasonable level so that when the kids go off to college, now the kids probably don't want to hear this, <laughs> but instead of mom worrying, <laughs> mom can say, come see me right now. And then you just pop in the living room and they're like, oh, great. Because the same way that we're using chat boxes and, and you know, voice activated assistants, we'll be able to use those holographic images. And that technology is not that far from being available. And certainly, it's only mostly probably because of the cost to bring it on a wide scale and to be pervasive. So what skills do you see that CPAs need to be prepared for the future, to be prepared for this this technological change that, that, that when we talk about blockchain, we talk about artificial intelligence, we talk about robotic process automation, where we're not having to do the crunching of the numbers, but we're, we're there to analyze the information and communicate it throughout the organization or to our clients or to whomever. Well, I mean, Peter, I think it's about what you talk about. I think it's taking the numb out of the numbers <laughs> in your book. I think it's, you know, your book is insightful because it does talk about skills that we need to have. And you've also done sessions in general on storytelling, which is the word that people are using today. And I think that is the skill. The skill is the AI will be able to provide us back the transactions and based on what we feed in, make a recommendation. The machine learning will say, you've made the decision the same decision 10 other times using these factors because machine learning would have learned how you thought, what made you choose what you chose. But that the machine did that. We can't take those numbers into our internal customers or to the public and say, here are the numbers. We have to explain the so what. We have to tie it to the mission, purpose, and values. We have to bring and illustrate it to life so that we are providing, I would say, astute recommendations that matter to their core interests. And they're not going to just want to report because if they just wanted a report, then they will have a chat box or a robot. The difference is the human element, the gut check, the, hey guys, let's think about the environment that we're sitting in. Yes, you could close this plant, but what about the fact that 20,000 people will be out of work if you do? The, The people who work here, the businesses that rely on you, the airport that would close because now you're not here. There's so many non-balance sheet type of, of decision points that companies have to make. And there is qualitative. And maybe it's things that maybe we haven't considered before. But in today's environment, I would say problem solving, critical thinking, creative thinking, good judgment, people, management, all of those are things that we're going to have to factor in and recognizing that all decisions aren't economic. And, and as tough as it is to say, because as CPAs, we want to, or as accountants also, <laughs> we want to say the numbers are the numbers. That's it. The numbers are the numbers. Well, as leaders, we know that there are so many other data elements and considerations that have to be taken into account. So I, there's times that when I'm at a, speaking at a conference, I'll ask the audience, what business are you in? And I'll hear uh, consulting, no, auditing, no, that's a byproduct. I do taxes. I clients are, no, that's a byproduct. And, and I get accountants a little bit uncomfortable just before they look like they're ready to get up and hit me or walk out. <laughs> and I go, what, what business you're in, you're in the people business first and foremost, because without people, you have no business. You, that's correct. You have no clients, you have no customers. So the better we take care of our people, the better we look at them as an asset uh, and grow those folks because if they don't like the environment, they're going to leave. And it takes twice as much time to replace somebody. Now, some folks, if they don't get on the train or they're not not good for the organization, that's a bad hire, hire and we need to figure out how to hire better. But once they're in and they're productive, we have to keep them motivated. We have to, uh, you know, that emotional intelligence aspect within within leadership has to trickle its way down. Because if somebody leaves, what what did I what did Tom Hood say once? Is he Tom or Rebecca? 
Uh, firms are out there looking for a 35-year-old tax manager. And you know how long it takes to find a 35-year-old tax manager? 35 years and nine months. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So, you know, I take, I take the Southwest approach. They, you know, Herb Keller built this wonderful airline and he recognized people are my greatest asset. And yeah. I, I never, they never have had layoffs at Southwest, just natural attrition, but realized I need to keep my people and we can cut other costs to maintain profitability, but when when we're when profitability is down, the first thing we look at is our largest line item on the, the income statement, people, payroll, and we begin begin cutting. And I think that's a big big detriment to organizations these days. That is true, and I have always thought it was about the people because your empl- your customers will never love the company until your employees do. Mm-hmm. And I read that somewhere and I was like, oh my gosh, that is absolutely true. And so I think people are your greatest asset because it takes so long, to your point, of teaching them how they should operate, what the, the functions are, and then letting them thrive. And and I think I heard another leader say, why would we hire you the best and the brightest and then tell you exactly what to do? No, we want to give you the parameters. We want to tell you the outcome, and then we want you to go and, and, and make it better because you're going to think about stuff that I didn't think about. So if I tell you how to do it, I am then really putting myself at a detriment because then you're already limiting your thinking. No, we want you, I'm going to tell you the outcome of where I want to go, and then I want you to ask me why because you're going to see the things I didn't see. And until we're comfortable without our checklist, and until we're comfortable with a clean sheet of paper, we are going to be behind. And our organizations that support, that rely on us are going to be behind. We have to be able to see what's not there, look around corners, anticipate the future. You know, Maryland Association of CPAs talks a lot about the anticipatory organization with Dan Burris, and, and it couldn't be more true mm. because we know that change is happening. There's no way to fully anticipate all of the changes, but you know it's going to change. And so do you have an environment that is really agile, innovative, and flexible enough to change, to accept that there are new ways of doing things? And it's not the three-year strategic plan that you put on your shelf. It's an ongoing, in real time, crowdsourced, where do you think we should be kind of operating model that says that the best idea can come from the person sweeping the floor to the person greeting people at the desk to the CEO and incenting people to be not afraid to speak up, giving them the the environment to make risky, what would be risky in other organizations, risky suggestions. I've, I've, always, I've heard this quote, I, I don't know who said it, but the collective knowledge Outside of your office, far exceeds the collective knowledge inside of your office. Mm-hmm. And, I can see that. And that goes to collaboration. And this, you were talking about next gen leadership. Now I'm a baby boomer. I'm I'm, I'm ten years older than you are, so the accounts can do the math real quick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 48, guys. If you needed to refresh it. <laughs> yeah, and I had to actually write it down on a medical form the other day. And I said, "How did I get to be 58 all of a sudden? Where did that come?" But that you know, there's gonna be some folks on the, who's listening to this will be upset about it. But that old style baby boomer leadership model. I'm telling you what to do. Do it this way. This is not the environment anymore. I'm not sure if it really worked back then, but it doesn't work today. And the ability to collaborate with everybody in the office, to to give them that room. Um, I I, I was in the banking business at one time, and my my boss told me, Pete, I'm going to give you some rope. You're going to do one or two things with this rope. You're either going to build a bridge or you're going to hang yourself. Oh, wow. One of the two things. (laughs) And he, he, he was right. But the thing was, when I made a mistake, when I hung myself, he didn't beat me up over it. He, he would say, what did you learn from this so you don't hang yourself right. again? And I still have those rope burns. I, I still have that, that from those mistakes that I made. But that's what makes me better today than I was then. If we 
look at those mistakes as, well, someone said, use the acronym of FAIL, first attempt in learning. Oh, I like it. But the old baby boomer kind of leadership was we weren't allowed to make mistakes. Mistakes were bad. Mistakes were not looked at. Now, if you make the same mistake over and over and over and over again, okay, but not the first time. What did you learn? What are you going to do differently? How is it going to affect you? How is it going to affect the organization? And the, the, the more that we fail early on, the, the better we'll be later in life. Bringing it back full circle to what you were talking about at the very beginning of this conversation. Absolutely. And, and so with great power comes great responsibility. And I say that about technology because it means that the generation today has access to knowledge and information that we didn't have. We had to learn through brute force, through repetition, through someone who was in the accounting department for 30 years, who we, who the leaders probably prayed every night that she wouldn't wake up the next day and say, I'm not coming in. (laughs) And probably that's how we learn. And in today's environment, I mean, in Maryland, you can get nano learning, um, 10 minute increments of learning. And I know other states are thinking about it if they haven't done it already. You can get CTE online. You can, you can go to a university. I mean, there's so many opportunities to learn and get new skill sets. And technology can be overwhelming. And so we have new challenges, but we also have new opportunities because of technology. And we have got to get up to speed. And so it means that our young people know they have options because, and I say this, I was influenced by baby boomers who grew up in the Motown generation era, <laughs> who were serious about pay your dues, pull yourself up by your bootstrap. Your time will come. We'll let you know when it's time and then you can move forward. In today's environment, what I've said to our leaders across the organization, you almost in your onboarding need to say, for any of you who aspire to be a CEO, a managing partner, to be a managing director, to be a manager. These are the skills that we're looking for. You can't say it's five years. Because as soon as you say five or 10 or 15 years, they're thinking, well, suppose I learn it faster. So if I learn it faster, Peter, if I learn everything that you tell me I need to know, are you going to arbitrarily keep me in this place because I have not stayed in the role as long as you did in your career. That is not going to work for today's generation. So that's why I talk about multi-generations working in the work environment. And it's across the board. It's around the country. The same things that we see, some of the characteristics and across the millennials and Zs, we see no matter where we are, everyone that are exes and boomers and traditionalists are saying the same thing. And so it just tells me that technology is probably the equalizer because how would, you know, a kid in the UK have similar characteristics as a kid in Singapore, as a kid who's in Mexico, as a kid that's, you know, sitting in Victoria and somewhere across the United States and Canada, Maryland, you know, California, uh, Florida, how would they all have similar characteristics? The equalizer is their access to technology, which then changes how they think, what they expect, and and what they are going to demand when they come to work inside our organization. Wow. That's that's a steep learning curve for for some out there to to, uh, change their mindset to to, to realize that. And and for those who have... um, I mean, they're, they're, they're ahead of the game. And one of my favorite firms actually is in Maryland. And they were one of the first to do the anticipatory organization. Well, last year, last business season, at the beginning of the busy season, they, they made some changes. One change they made that there are no mandatory weekends. Arr, what? No mandatory what? weekends. And, and then, then they went ahead and said, you know, by the way, we're going to change our vacation policy to unlimited PTO. Arr. Unlimited yo. Wait a minute. That means you trust your people. Then they went on to do one additional thing is they didn't do market surveys. At the time, they had two locations in the Baltimore area, uh, in the D.C. Baltimore area. And they had a group uh, of employees driving in from Frederick and driving into the, into the, uh, to the D.C. area, which means traffic and jam and a lot of time in the car, that they opened an office. 
in Frederick for the people to work versus to and unbelievable, unbelievable. He, I can't believe it. That's amazing. They're uh, they're they're one of the case studies in my book. Deleon and Stang. Uh, ah, <laughs> and they, uh, you know, I love them. They yes. they get it. It, it, and when I share that with audiences uh, of CPAs, I get that the head, the Scooby Doo kind of, what? <laughs> but you know, they have low turnover. They, they get people working for them. That, that that it's almost it's like the Richard Branson approach. Because Branson says, I don't worry about my customers. I worry about my people. If I put my the right people in place, they will take care of my customers. Absolutely. And that goes back to your customers will never love you if your employees don't. Exactly. And that, which is why I said technology and next generation leadership. But in next generation leadership, it really applied to all generations. So it was awesome. So I have one. Uh, you, uh, we said before we started, we could probably talk for two or three hours. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we did. We did. We did. So uh, we'll begin to wrap this up. The, the one question I, I've always wanted to ask you, and it goes back to your time as chair of the executive board of AS, uh, the, we'll just say the Institute and the association, and in all your travels, what was the one thing in, this tra- in your travels that, if I said, what was the most enjoyable part of this process? Do you have one story that you can share? It is, well, I have a lot of stories because they're all around people. But I think that it's, now I know this is going to be counter to what I just said about next generation leadership. <laughs> but I think a couple of the stories that have, that I've cherished have been around our more seasoned members. Um, members who have walked up to me and they said, I've been a member for 50 years. And, and they've got, you know, at this point, they don't pay dues anymore for their state society. They don't pay dues for the association or, I mean, let's just say for AICPA. And I was concerned that being a minority female would be so daunting to our members. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure what the reception would be. But our members, and, and I have to credit this maybe to us being CPAs, and they know that if you pass the exam, you pass the exam, and hey, welcome to the club. <laughs> and so it doesn't matter if you're blue. If you pass the exam, <laughs> welcome to the club. <laughs> and so I, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure because our profession um, is working on being more inclusive, and, but it's not now. It wasn't then, um, but we're getting better. And so to have members who were 50 years in, and and they they would tell me, hey, I'm 74, I'm 75, and met some members who were 80. And they walked up to me and they said, you know what, young lady? And I would smile because, <laughs> hey, 46 is a young lady when you're 75. So I'll take it. And they said, it's about time. We're glad to see you here. And I'm telling you, if, if I didn't hold myself together, I probably would have burst into tears. Because they would have come through the profession during a time where Black people couldn't even take the exam. They would have come through the profession where women were not even expected to go to college, let alone go on and and be executives. And so for them to have evolved and changed and stuck it through and was willing to change their mindset that if they had it ever, to do that. And to be in the here and now tells me we all can grow, we all can change, we all can evolve, and we all can accept, you know, what's around the corner. Uh, because the, the generations that have come before us gave us a great foundation, and we have a responsibility to make it better for the next generation. Wow. And what a way to end up this conversation with. That was pretty, that was pretty powerful. Uh, and for those in the audience who don't know, when she refer, when Kimberly refers to NAB, it's the National Association of Black Accountants. And I've, yes. had, I've had the honor and the privilege of speaking at that conference. I think I'm going on my fifth or sixth year and is by far, and I've shared this with you, by far my favorite conference to attend. Yeah. To be a part of, to 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 speak at, there's so much energy. It's it's just such a a, a great conference, and it's I'm looking for. I'm I, I always block it out. 
soon as I know the dates and I'd call Marilyn, okay, I blocked out these dates. <laughs> give, give me, give me, give me it's back always in. a great time. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, always it, a great conference. Yeah, it, it is. And, and once again, I, I can't thank you enough for taking time. I, I've enjoyed our conversation. I, I look forward to when our paths cross again, hopefully sooner than later. I, I admire everything about you. Uh, you you are by far. I, I'm I, maybe Tom Hood might be your biggest fan, but I'm one A. <laughs> I love or one, Tom Hood. I or, love him. Or, or one B. Um, and, and you've had a, a dazzling career, and, and I can't wait to see what's next for you. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Thank you to the audience for listening. I look forward to seeing you guys out at our conferences and certainly as our past trap uh, cross. Thank you. Now that you've listened to this episode, what are your next steps in preparing for the future? Is it changing your mindset and recognize that those soft skills are mandatory in order to become future-proof? Is it learning more about artificial intelligence or RPAs? Whatever it is, just do it and work on your new skill every single day. One of my favorite quotes comes from Simon Sinek, where he said, just because you take a leadership class doesn't make you a leader. You must work on those skills every single day. So get to work. Thank you for listening. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe and share this episode with a friend. Also, please visit www.c-sweetradio.com to listen to many of the outstanding podcasts they have in their network. Like what you just heard, visit c-sweetradio.com. C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.